You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. This is Aaron Fishman coming to you with an action-packed two-part show that delves into the Western Conference Finals through the first two games. Representing the Lakers' perspective is a voice familiar to our regular listeners. It's Harrison Fagan, writer and editor-in-chief of SB Nation's Silver Screen and Roll. Tackling the Nuggets side will be the phenomenal Katie Wingy, on-air reporter, host, and analyst for Altitude TV and Altitude Sports Radio. Since she's a first-time guest, here's her fun fact. While Katie was living in Italy for a few months, she traveled northwest to visit neighboring Switzerland. There, she celebrated her 23rd-slash-Jordan birthday by jumping out of a plane with a parachute in tow, as one does. Anyway... This series is a solid one. The Lakers hold a commanding 2-0 lead, but given how this postseason has gone, the never-say-die Nuggets can never truly be counted out. One could never justifiably call the Lakers an underdog these playoffs. They have LeBron James and Anthony Davis, two of the league's brightest stars, and boasted an elite defense up until the season was halted in March. Yet some were counting them out, given how they played in Orlando to finish the season. Now they're defending at an extremely high level again. All that being said, on Monday, the Nuggets came within seconds of nodding the series at one game apiece, when another furious comeback just fell short. If Denver is to upset the Lakers, you can bet it will be as thrilling as Katie's skydiving experience, and probably much less terrifying. For now, however, Lakers are where they want to be, up 2-0. So we'll tip off with Harrison before Katie swaps in after the break. Enjoy. Greetings, Harrison. Thanks for joining me on your day off. Uh, no, I'm I'm happy to do it, Aaron. Like, honestly, I barely slept. Like, even though I was able to get to bed at a decent hour because the game was so early. Like, like, that was an incredible basketball game last night that really the Lakers were pretty lucky to come away with a win in. Yeah, that buzzer-beating Game 2 win was a thrilling one and just a bitter pill to swallow if you're a Nuggets fan. Looking at it from a macro sense, this is the first Western Conference Finals appearance for the Lakers franchise in a decade and their first time in the playoffs in six years. I know the fan base is accustomed to championships, obviously given the franchise's history even though it feels like it's been a while, probably since they've been anywhere close to one. Was it always championship or bust this season for much of that fan base that you interact with regularly? Or has it become even more of that now that teams like the Bucks and the Clippers were eliminated earlier than expected? So, I I mean, obviously the stereotype about like Lakers fans and the, and like this, you know, like the, the team and everything is championship or bust. And like, I I think to some degree that's, that's like probably an accurate thing, like, especially for, so like, I would say most of the fans that I interacted with, like once they got the Anthony Davis trade done, like, yeah, it was championship or bust. Like, 
Mm-hmm. I think in terms of people that I talk to and that like, like respected, like, uh, uh, like people in the media that like I interact with and like people that I consider like smart, um, like, you know, like Pete Zayas, Darius Soriano, like they were always kind of preaching like, okay, like this is a year where we kind of see where, the, what they have like next year, you know, when they have the mid level, that was before obviously all of the coronavirus cap uncertainty, whatever, like they were set to have like some weapons to really add to this roster this summer. Um, you know, and be able to make some trades with like a bunch of expiring contracts and like, like they could like, so I think going into the year for me, like, I don't know if I was necessarily championship or bust. I think I was kind of like conference finals or bust. Like they definitely needed to at least make it here to like, you know, justify the amount of talent that they had. And, you know, at that point, like, I don't, I don't think obviously now there would be some shame in losing to the Clippers. And I think there would have been, had they done it like, you know, then too, but I don't think like ultimately that there would be a whole lot of like embarrassment and like losing to a team that people expected to be that good. Now, obviously they collapse. The nuggets are here now. Um, but like, so long story short, I think a lot of the fans that I interacted with, like it was championship or bust because like, look, you have LeBron and Anthony Davis, like to some degree, those were the expectations. But I also think like that there were, there were a decent amount of vocal people saying like, okay, let's kind of see what they have. We don't really know about the rest of this roster. And like, I I think it's come together better than like, even like the biggest optimists could have expected in terms of like, just how much they're winning and the ways they're winning. The reason why I posed the question that way is I just wanted to make a distinction between fans and people who cover the team or the NBA at large. From my perspective, I thought going into the playoffs, Maybe the Bucks and Clippers might have been slight favorites over the Lakers. But, I mean, the other thing is, too, that Davis hasn't signed his extension. But all indications, and we can talk about this if we have time, appear to be that he wants to stay with the franchise long term, regardless of how this season winds up for the Lakers. But that is another thing to think about, I guess. But speaking of Anthony Davis... He yelled Kobe after hitting that game-winning three to extend the series lead to two games to nothing. And that was, of course, with the Lakers wearing those black Mamba uniforms for the third time this postseason. They're now 3-0 and while wearing them. And this comes in a year where Kobe, of course, tragically passed away in the plane accident. He and his daughter, among others. And... This is their first Western Conference Finals appearance since he was on the team when they won the championship over the Celtics in that seven-game series in 2010. Um, So how special was that moment for Anthony Davis to do that, given all that context? And then this question might seem simple to answer, given his greatness, but how has the 27-year-old star excelled so much on what's by far the biggest stage of his NBA career? Yeah, so it was really funny as an aside last night watching the TNT halftime show when Charles Barkley, I think a lot of people have noted this, but Charles Barkley basically went on in on Anthony Davis as like just a nice guy who was talented at basketball and didn't have killer instinct. And I just thought, oh, that yeah, was hilarious. he compared him to Derek Coleman. Yeah, exactly. I just thought that it was hilarious that, you know, he'd do that on the night when Anthony Davis ultimately ended up hitting like a completely cold blooded buzzer beater to take out an opponent and that go up to zero in his first appearance in the Western Conference finals. Um, like, I, I mean, honestly, he's been incredible this year. I, I think most people like I, I don't know how you felt after the trade went down, but 
like my concern ha- my concerns about this team had nothing to do with Anthony Davis, nothing to do with LeBron James. Like that was this is probably like this is one of the most seamless fits I think we've ever seen between two superstars. Just like obviously they haven't won a title yet. Like I, I know that that's like probably sounds a little blasphemous, but I'm just talking about from the sense of like both of them being friends, both of them being at a point in their careers where neither of them is really looking to, like, they aren't really in competition with each other for who's in control of the team. Like, you know, who's the alpha dog? Who's this? Who's that? Like, Anthony Davis is at a stage in his career where he, like, really wants to learn from LeBron. And, like, you know, he's done it by himself and is already at a point where he's willing to be, like, you know, quote, unquote, the 1B option on this team if it means winning at the highest level because that's something that he's really committed to. And I I think that his reaction to that buzzer beater last night, I think says a lot, like not just him, not like everybody made a big deal about him mouthing Kobe, him like mouth him yelling. Like I like, uh, I think he said, I'm no, it wasn't. I'm built different. He said, I'm like that. Uh, and pound as he (laughs) pounded his chest at the imaginary fans that are not there. Um, but like the telling thing to me was that even when he was talking about celebrating, the buzzer beater and how great that win was and how great it felt and how much of a dream come true it was to get to like succeed like that on this stage. He um, was also talking about like that, you know, he was disappointed that they had kind of let down at the end and that that was necessary and was talking about that. They still have a bunch of adjustments that they can make how mad he was that Jokic scored on him on that final possession and kind of pushed him under the rim. And so like, I I think that we saw a lot about his mentality and how important winning actually is to him. A lot of people made jokes about like the big market stuff and whatever. And like, I think that that was a factor in him wanting to be in LA. I think that by far the biggest one was getting to create the seamless partnership with LeBron James, where both of them are constantly making each other better. Like Anthony Davis is probably the best big man that LeBron James has ever played with, arguably his best teammate in terms of being able to make him better and how like Davis does things that kind of paper over LeBron's weaknesses and LeBron does things that paper over Davis's. And it's just like been complete symbiosis this year, just both on and off the court. And, uh, you know, I think last night with Davis kind of carrying them down the stretch on a night when LeBron was not having his best second half was really kind of uh, illustrative of that partnership and how successful it's been and why Davis wanted to be here. Mm -hmm. Since we're trying to get through a lot in this short period of time, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Kobe Bryant is so important to the franchise. Can you just touch a little bit on how special it is for them to go for the championship in this year? And and just him yelling Kobe too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's one of those things where like when he first died and people started talking about win it for Kobe, I wasn't super comfortable with that being as a fan expectation because it's like these guys are already going through a lot. This was, That was even before the coronavirus hit and everyone's, you know, like in this bubble away from their families and all this weirdness. Um, and so like, but then e- even then, like, I just felt like it was an unfair expectation for us to place on them from the outside. But internally, I think it's very clearly something that matters to them living up to Kobe. Kobe, you know, you heard Frank Vogel referencing it in the uh, in his halftime speech last night and then after the game calling it a mamba shot repeatedly to the team and then in his media availability. You've had LeBron talk about it multiple times. This is not even the first time Anthony Davis has talked about wanting to win for Kobe and the different energy that they get from those black Mamba jerseys and how they almost feel like he's with them. Like this is very clearly something that matters to them internally within the team. And so like from that perspective, like I I think it's totally fine now. I don't know that like fans should be tweeting at them, win it for Kobe, stuff like that. But it is something that has had an effect on the team for sure. 
That's really interesting. Going back to the basketball, there was some concern over whether Kyle Kuzma could live up to being the reliable third scorer on this unit. And from my perspective, there have been at least three factors that have come together to seemingly eliminate the need for that. I would say the phenomenal team defense, the offensive brilliance of LeBron and and AD, and just the balanced scoring of the supporting cast at large. To what extent do you agree with that, or am I missing something? No, I agree with you. I I think even going into the playoffs, LeBron said it. Like, Kuz is going to have to be our third best player for us to win a championship. And so far in the playoffs, that really has not been true. Uh, He's had a couple good games here and there. But, like, last night, uh, you know, I I thought, and I wasn't alone in thinking this, that Kuz kind of got them in a little bit of trouble as the Nuggets made that comeback trying to go toe-to-toe with Michael Porter Jr. I I don't know if that's like a personal beef or if that's just like we're both young players that were trying to prove ourselves like thing or whatever it may be. But, you know, he has not been the third best player like he he probably was in the bubble games but he has not been so far during the playoffs and it really hasn't mattered because this team's defense has been incredible you know which to Kuzma's credit he's been a big part of in general but like the offensive success hasn't totally been there for him he's found some success as a cutter and like doing little things and trying to make his impact on the game but like you know it's been here and there and I think especially this series he has not been great so far I haven't really had enough time to like dig into specifically why he hasn't been great beyond like the shootout thing with MPJ last night. But um, like he, you know, he hasn't been that. And I, again, I don't think it's been necessary. I think that, like you said, they found other ways to win. I think you're absolutely right. Another big question mark was the perimeter defense, especially after Avery Bradley opted out of the Orlando bubble. Yep. And uh, they've really stepped up. I think certain players and just as a whole, Anthony Davis, of course, anchors that defense. He's been great on that end. They were an elite defense during the regular season, especially before Orlando. I think third they ranked in defensive efficiency. I believe that is correct, yeah. And and there was some slip-up in those eight games, final eight games of the season. And then they've been, again, one of the most efficient defenses through 12 games this postseason. The Celtics are slightly better. What's happened with their defense? How have they been able to surprise some on that end in the playoffs? Well, I, I think to those of us that watch this team like every single game this year, it honestly isn't that much of a surprise. Like, yeah, they they definitely had a letdown in the bubble, but like it was very clearly, or at least it seemed to me, to be an effort thing more so than like like it was a like that was clearly a team that had locked up their seed. Like, yeah, they were playing those games, but they were kind of messing around. They weren't really taking them that seriously. Like they knew they didn't have to win them necessarily, and were kind of coasting to the playoffs even though they had talked about trying to win every game and like wanting to really go into the playoffs hot, they clearly did not execute that out on the court. But like this, this team, like you said, by efficiency, just by watching them, like you could tell they were one of the best teams in the league this year on that end. And whether third best, first best, like whatever, like they they were up there and like they were, I think, no, they were number one for points of the season too. Um, Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. they, they, they have a level that they can get to. The thing that's been, the most impressive to me about their defensive success in the bubble is how it's come. Like you mentioned Avery Bradley not being there. Okay. Oh, the Lakers are going to struggle on the perimeter. Like I think all of us were guilty of thinking that to some degree, I I think I was a little bit down more so on how much that would impact them relative to like, you know, I guess what most people thought, but you know, even I thought that that would impact their perimeter defense and he would have been a, like a useful body. You'd think to throw at Damon CJ in the first round, but the Lakers there, 
they figure out a way to funnel those guys towards their bigs, get everyone to kind of buy into their role and really send a bunch of hard traps and double teams and pick up full court and like had no problem basically shut the like they didn't necessarily they didn't shut those guys down but they made their lives hell to the point that Portland had basically given up on that series by like midway through game four and uh then you know in the next round the Lakers defensive success this year was so constructed on okay let's drive guys into this wall of arms that we have with Anthony Davis and another big at the rim really just harass them in the paint and then force them into missing like tough contested end of shot clock looks or missing shots over our arms and stuff like that like let's just really use the length and physicality of this team to wear teams down and then against the Rockets they basically adapted to an entirely new style on the fly turned into this like kind of smaller ball still big but small ball like switch happy switch everything just like uh really go after Harden force Westbrook to shoot like completely change their defensive style like after one game basically uh of that series and like this is clearly a team that was built to be able to play around LeBron James and Anthony Davis, both of whom are two of the probably the most versatile superstars in the league. This is a versatile team that can play a bunch of different ways around those guys. You can move Anthony Davis up to center, switch everything. You can like throw one of those bigs in there, be really physical, like wall off the rim and do stuff like that. Like they really can adapt their style to whatever team they're playing. And, you know, obviously they they had some issues with their strategy against the Nuggets last night, especially during that second half comeback, but they locked in when it, when it mattered most for the most part. And they got enough stops during that game to, you know, come out with the win and have a chance at the buzzer beater. It's interesting. Our previous guest, Salman Ali, who covers the Rockets, was concerned about the Lakers' ability on the perimeter to combat Harden and those three-point shooters. We saw how that unfolded. As you just documented, they really figured out how to slow those guys down. And they've just been dominant on defense. The other thing related to that that I wanted to ask you about is we all know how Nikola Jokic can impact the game in so many ways. He's very difficult to combat defensively. Basically, how have the Lakers been able to limit his damage? Well, I mean, short answer, last night they really didn't. Uh, the game one, I really got the sense that the Nuggets were tired and had a little bit of a mental letdown, just be like from fatigue, from no longer having their backs against the wall, whatever you want to call it. Like that was clearly not their best effort uh, in game one. And then game two, you know, it really looked like the Lakers were taking control again. And I was like, oh man, like are the Nuggets just like, are they just toasted at this point? And then we saw the comeback kids return in the second half once again, mm-hmm. like they have, you know, so many times during this playoffs already. And last night, I really didn't like what the Lakers did on Jokic. They were switching, I think, too easily. Alex Caruso, you know, I I, I mentioned this on Twitter and I, I think on other podcasts, but like he's a lot of things and he a lot of them are good, but he is not a guy that can stop Nikola Jokic. That's not his fault. He tried hard, but like he is a smaller guy and the Lakers kept sending doubles, but I don't think that you want to have to send doubles at Jokic because he's like one of the best passers in the history of basketball, like probably the best that we've ever seen from a big guy. And, you know, just has incredible floor vision and smarts and speed at reading defenses. And like, he's going to pick you apart if you're constantly doubling him. My guess on what their hope was, and, you know, it kind of bore fruit at times, was that the Nuggets wouldn't be able to punish them with enough three-point shooting, and they just wanted to get the ball out of Jokic's hands. But I don't know if that's sustainable to, like, play into something that is a strength of the Nuggets. And I'm not really sure why they were giving up that switch so easily if that wasn't their strategy. And, you know, 
Frank Vogel has watched a million more hours of tape than I have and ever will. Um, and like they've made a lot of really good adjustments this year. I'm not sure I'm in love with this one, but like we'll see how it goes or if they stick with it. For what it's worth, and this is just a single game in a best of seven series, although Jokic did have 30 points and nine assists on Sunday night, his plus minus was negative six in 38 and a half minutes, and he only grabbed six rebounds. And the Lakers had a huge rebounding advantage, and JaVale McGee helped with that, and um, the, the Lakers really did well on the offensive glass as well. Yeah, no, I mean, look, they, they did enough to win the game. I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I think at, at some point you're going to let him get comfortable doing that and you're going to let these shooters get comfortable. Yeah, you, you're just saying you don't know if it's sustainable. Yeah, how, like they're playing they with fire a little bit, him. I think is my is my point. I, I think that's fair. You know we were going to talk about this too, playoff Rondo. How could we not? Yes. He's, seems like just he's changed their team. and. It's looked like it's been pretty effortless how they've integrated him back in. And that's after he missed almost six months. Well, I mean, to be fair, they weren't playing that whole time. But I I get get your point. Like, he hadn't played basketball in six months. Yeah. So he hasn't played until the second round. And then he comes in. And there were some question marks about him, maybe, and if he had some liabilities potentially. Um, How has his presence enhanced the team's chances of going all the way this season and what are those potential liabilities if you see any yeah so I mean I think we saw some of the potential liabilities last night like he was sloppy with the ball he wasn't particularly good on defense like he was kind of for most of that game the Rondo that we saw during the regular season like the guy that wasn't necessarily that was arguably the Lakers most detrimental player for the entire like regular season Uh, but you know playoff Rondo who did not really show up until that final possession to throw the inbounds pass which he actually asked to do uh, to Anthony Davis and set up that game winning three beyond that like he didn't really contribute a whole lot positively last night but during these playoffs you know I I think you know you mentioned reintegrating him and like yeah like that's not a small thing to go from not playing basketball for six months to then doing it at this level in the playoffs but he's really totally flipped the switch and I think that it was easier to integrate him because they'd been playing with him all year and so they kind of like like Rondo throws these weirdo passes and like these looks that like not a lot of other guys would throw and he really pushes pace and takes control of the game and like I think if the Lakers hadn't played him even when he wasn't playing that well earlier in the season the team wouldn't have been able to integrate him that well right now and look you can quibble with him and like this regular season that he had but he's clearly flipped a switch and his defense was excellent in the Rocket series he was really good again I thought in game one of this series of really pushing the pace and making sure that the Lakers got out on the break I think part of the reason he struggled last night is because the Nuggets did a better job of getting back in transition and then you saw some of the half court Rondo weakness but um for the most part he's been incredible and I'm never going to doubt him ever again like he you know as bad as he played last night I fully expect him to come back and like basically have like a triple double or something the next game or do you know whatever the most ridiculous improbable outcome is like playoff Rondo is probably going to do that yeah it's funny because he's 34 and this is not a young Lakers team but it seems like his presence really helps them push the pace as you've mentioned and I think they're better when they're moving faster. He just gets the ball out ahead. Like, he he just makes yeah. sure to do it. Like, it's not even a matter of, like, young legs. He just, like, every time remembers, like, okay, make or miss. Like, we got to run. We got to beat this team down the court. And I, I think that that's, like, you know, it's easy for us to say, but it's probably not that easy to do. And so if you have someone pushing that pace, I think that matters. I think he knows no other way. I think that's yeah. just the only way he can play. So I touched on this a little bit ago, but 
they're going big and, and it makes sense because this is obviously this is a, a different team than the Rockets were and the Nuggets are a lot bigger. So now Howard, who wasn't playing really much at all against the Rockets, is getting significant minutes. And he's making an impact in different ways. In game one, they really essentially started to foul out Denver. That's, I mean, not fouling them out, but they went to the line a ridiculous number of times that second quarter, and that led to foul trouble for key Nuggets. I think Jogic ended up only playing 25 minutes or so because of that. And then in game two, that rebounding disparity that I mentioned. Is that something that you're going to look to going forward? And just touch on, if you can, the flexibility and open-mindedness of Frank Vogel to go based off of the matchups and give a guy a look who hadn't really gotten much time before. We even saw that... Um, with, with the rookie, Horton Tucker, too, even though we're probably not going to see much of him this series. Well, we saw him on the uh, on the game-winning celebration <laughs> last night. He got absolutely we, trucked by Anthony Davis, like, going to give him a chest bump. And it, like, I hope he's okay, but it was probably worth it. He but. tweeted, he tweeted, LOL, I'm okay, or something like that, like, or I'm cool, <laughs> after, the, after the game. So he saw that everybody was roasting him online, but it was pretty funny. Um, and it's a good memory, too. Yeah, no, that'll be, he'll, he'll remember that for the rest of his life, probably, uh, you know, like, that celebration. Um you know, Frank, I think, deserves a ton of credit for how versatile this team has been and how he has them ready to play a bunch of different styles. We, we mentioned during the Rocket series, completely adapting how they played and how they play defense, like on the fly. And the Lakers have a lot of smart players who deserve credit for that, but so does the coaching staff for, you know, seeing and I think making the start, you know, Markeith adjustment before they had to for, um, you know, getting JaVale out of the rotation earlier than they necessarily needed to and Dwight Howard too, like just really realizing that was not a series for the bigs. But also they deserve credit for staying ready for the next series. And the coaches deserve credit for keeping their players ready for, you know, whatever opportunities they get, be it like Talon coming in and impressing in two games against the Rockets and then now getting getting inactive for this series because like they need more bigs than they need wings. Um, and then like Dwight and JaVale basically coming back in and like, look, JaVale's gotten a lot of hate from Lakers fans, especially for how he's played this year and how he's played in the series. I actually argued for Dwight to start the last game and the Lakers considered that. I think that the reason they didn't, we actually saw it last night, was Dwight, like every couple weeks, has one of these games where he gets like three fouls in three minutes. And you can tell the refs got an email from the league office that was like points of emphasis, like Dwight Howard shenanigans, um, because he's just doing a lot down there, and especially on Jokic. And I I was making this point someone else like earlier today. I I almost think that he's a guy that really just like, like after a prime of like, like you remember like all the crazy stuff that teams would get away with and do to stop Dwight Howard when he was in his prime, like, you know, just constantly pushing, shoving all these uncalled fouls, like just stuff that you get away with on a bigger player. And just like, you know, for lack of a better term, shenanigans. And like, he really seems to have taken a joy in doing that to other bigs this year, because he's learned every single trick in the book by having it done to him. And he really tried to frustrate Nikola Jokic during that first game. And he tried it again last night and was just getting foul after foul after foul and I think you know his physicality is valuable in this series but I think the reason to maybe stick with JaVale McGee or not completely mothball him from the rotation is that you need other fouls and another big body to go against Jokic if it's a night where the refs are not letting Howard get away with the stuff that he normally gets away with and so mm-hmm. like like he's been incredible this year I, I think like you know if you would have taken my vote like you know 25 games into the season I would have voted for him for six man of the year like 
like he's been a revelation for this team off the bench. Justin really has totally like someone who has totally embraced their role. Um, and like, but you know, like we saw last night that sometimes that role does get him dinged for a couple fouls when he got away with a few too many, probably the last game. Mm-hmm. Moving on to LeBron James, just a quick thing. My instinct about this is that this is more of a media narrative that LeBron himself played a big role in fueling when he talked about being, quote, pissed off Yes, about garnering just 16 of the 101 first place votes for regular season MVP. Um, but to what extent is he a man on a mission like we haven't seen in many years? I, I definitely think it's a thing. I, I think, you know, real or perceived or manufactured, like we've seen the the hashtag washed king stuff. We've seen, you know, even last night, like he talked about how he had seen the chatter over the last few days about the about the ballots and stuff. And like, it wasn't just his MVP thing. It was like Anthony Davis, like not being on some people's, you know, uh, all NBA teams and stuff like that. And they use that as motivation. Like, I, I think this team it's almost Jordan-esque in the way that they look for perceived slights. And, you know, I think that honestly, like they've gotten a lot of them, like, you know, they, they heard all the chatter, you know, before the Blazers series at all, oh, like the Lakers don't want to play this Blazers team. They're really dangerous. And then they went out and stomped them. And then all oh, like the Rockets, I don't know if the Lakers can keep up with them and then went out and stomped them too. And, you know, I, I there hasn't been as much of that this series. And I almost feel like maybe like my theory is honestly, that that's part of why they're focusing so much on this voter stuff is because like nobody really picked the nuggets. And so they can't focus on that. They have to uh like they have to make up this like people are disrespecting us like look like I, do i think that he expected to get more votes for mvp because he's a competitive guy and like isn't this the same stuff that we like lionized in michael jordan during the last dance and things like that like absolutely yes to both but you know I, i'm a rational person and like Giannis was the MVP favorite. Everybody kind of knew he was going to win it. Like, how many votes did LeBron expect to get? Are voters supposed to, like, sacrifice their first place vote just so that it looks like a more even tally at the end? Or are they supposed to pick the person they thought? Like, clearly the majority of people during the regular season felt it was Giannis. I would have voted him for MVP during the regular season if I had a vote, which I don't. And I'm glad I don't because I don't want to be determining contractual outcomes and whatever. But, like... I don't blame him and I'm not surprised that he's pissed off about it. But like, I also think that, you know, to some degree, like this kind of stuff is expected, but they're professional athletes. And and this team does seem to be more driven than most and more attuned to when they're being slighted and able to lock in as a result of that than most. Mm -hmm. I want to give you an opportunity because I really liked the imagery of your metaphor just to talk about this a little bit. Alex Caruso as the perfect Remora fish. (laughs) <laughs> for LeBron, explain that to us. So, uh, a remora fish is uh, like I believe it's pronounced remora. You may be correct. I honestly don't know. Um, I've heard it both ways. Okay, I'm not so, sure. Yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I-, I know what it is. It is a smaller fish <laughs> that latches itself essentially onto a great white shark, swims alongside, or I think they do other sharks too. But great whites is mostly where I've seen it in nature. I'm like weirdly like I'm a big shark research person. Is one of the weird facts about me. Um, I enjoy Ooh, like learning about sharks terrified of them but I enjoy learning about them but remora fishes basically follow sharks along and like eat food off of their like skin or hide or whatever you call it for a shark and, and sharks don't eat them because they get a benefit of getting cleaned and remora fish get a free food source and protection from other predators and so it's like a mutually beneficial relationship where like and the reason I use the comparison for Alex Caruso is 
you know, there's all the talk about him and LeBron having the best net rating of any duo, you know, in LeBron James's career, what, you know, whatever, I think plus my, I forget which stat it was that they're like highest ranked in. Um, that's clearly not because of Alex Caruso, right? Like that, that's because LeBron is arguably the best player of all time and he's incredible. That said, the reason that Caruso is so high on that list is because he's a guy that, like, no, he's not going to decimate defenses on his own. He's not some star by himself or a guy that can run a team, but he is uniquely suited to feed off of the chaos and carnage that LeBron James leaves in his wake on offense. Like, he's a super smart cutter. He's a great defender. He has a great sense of where to be and when to move the ball. He's like a, like Laker, Pete Zayas of Laker Film Room always calls him a wheel greaser. And that really is another great metaphor for him. Like he's a guy that, like he is really good at playing with other really good players because he's so smart, but he's not a guy that necessarily, like a remora fish is not going to do fine by itself, but it does great when it's alongside a great white shark like LeBron. And so that was uh, the metaphor there. That's great. I like that a lot. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you just one final question. What is the biggest challenge, if you can identify one, that you foresee for the Lakers as they pursue the 17th championship? You know, to be honest, like I, like at the risk of getting old takes exposed, I don't think it's the Nuggets. Um, I, I think the biggest challenge, honestly, is just making sure that they continue to let, do the right thing, stay healthy. And, you know, it, they need their three-point shooters to continue to hit like a reasonable amount of shots. They can't survive if they're shooting like they did in game one against Portland or, you know, a couple other games this postseason. But like for the most part, I I think this team has figured out a lot of different ways to win. I think that they've managed to like essentially load manage LeBron and Anthony Davis during the playoffs. Like those guys outside of last night really have not played a ton of minutes. And um, like I, I think the biggest threat to them. You know, if we're talking about teams, is probably the Heat. Should the Heat move on? I think they're a bigger threat to them than the Celtics. Um, but, like, to be honest, I think it's just fighting against complacency, continuing to build this motivation that they have, and continuing to, like, just do the right things. Like, I think they figured out just a lot of different ways to win, whether they're playing big, playing small, and they just need to continue to go out there and play with the requisite energy, effort, and hustle to, like, execute on those schemes. Okay, that was great. Thanks so much for doing this. I know it's kind of a, tight time crunch but I I think a lot of people will really be fascinated to listen to your thoughts on the Lakers as they continue this journey and they, they try to get that title no I always love coming on with you Aaron so I'm happy to do it anytime and I know you're too humble to do this, but you have my permission after the call to shout, I'm like that or whatever you want to do because <laughs> you just did, did an amazing job, hit a game winner, whatever metaphor you want to use. I'm like that. There, like that. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I thought you were too humble for that. No, I like no, that. I, I'm like that. No, I am, not you at know, all. They don't call me the blog <laughs> Mamba for nothing, you know? <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. I'm Yovan Bruja of the Athletic Los Angeles, and you're listening to On the NBA Hey, Katie. Thanks for joining me. Before we start, I just have to praise you on your professionalism and your hard work. It was just such a tight scheduling window and really short notice. Yeah, Aaron, no problem. I'm happy to make some time for you. So much nugget stuff to dive into. Their extraordinary comeback spirit and resilience has been well documented, of course, throughout the postseason with those two comebacks um, from being down three games to one in each of the first two rounds. And those have included many epic second half comebacks. Then game two, 
they stormed back from the 16-point deficit in the third quarter. So this is going to be a two-part question, kind of incorporating glass half-full and glass half-empty elements. What have you observed from covering the Nuggets this season that best explains that amazing ability that they have to dig deep and overcome these substantial deficits? And then on the other side of the coin, how dangerous is it to play catch-up all the time? Is that sustainable? (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's sustainable. I think um, the Nuggets would prefer to not be coming back from down 3-1, and they would prefer to not have to come back from being down 16, 19, however many points. Um, But it's been entertaining, to say the least, so I'll give them that. I think there are a couple examples that speak to this team's resiliency and who they are and their identity. Uh, The one that stands out to me the most is when they beat Utah at Utah during the regular season, and they only had seven guys playing in that game Uh, just due to injury and sickness and a bunch of different issues. um, They were able to put seven guys on the floor and still find a way to win at Utah, which is one of the toughest places to play in the NBA. I don't think they had won there during coach Malone's time as the head coach of the Nuggets up until that win. So that one was huge. And then the game they played Milwaukee at Milwaukee this season, that was the second night of a back-to-back and it was a home and away. And so they actually ended up playing that game less than 24 hours after they had played a home game at the Pepsi Center. I remember I I was on that trip, so I traveled with the team, and we flew out as soon as the game was done in Denver, and we ended up getting to Milwaukee at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., and that's by the time we got to bed and got up. Obviously, they didn't shoot around that morning, but just a super quick turnaround game. They had every excuse in the book if they wanted to you know, turn the page to that, but instead they beat Milwaukee, who at the time had the best home record in the entire NBA, the best home court advantage. So those are just two instances, but I can tell you from being around the team that of course I'm surprised coming back from 3-1 because it is such a rare thing, but this team has the mental toughness and the fortitude of no other team I've ever been around. And I think each guy just has this chip on their shoulder individually and as a member of the Nuggets team and even head coach Michael Malone takes on that type of mentality as well. So you can see that kind of bleeding into his players and into the franchise. And it's something that they've leaned into, especially when they've been on the stage during the playoffs and have gotten more attention than they're used to. But they've been asking for respect for the last couple of years and to get more um, attention. And it's been, you know, deserved. They have Nikola Jokic, who's debatably the best, you know, passing big man of all time. Uh, He's so fun to watch. His basketball IQ is through the roof. And Jamal Murray obviously has been proving during these playoffs what he's capable of. So this is just a tough knit together crew. And even though they're shocking the world right now, those that know them close and that are within the organization are, I don't think, surprised by just the progress that they've made in the playoffs. That's really well said. And it's kind of a, a running joke that commentators have been saying throughout the playoffs and, and just people on social media. And of course, it's tongue in cheek that the Nuggets have their opponent right where they want them when they're down big in the second half. I agree with you that it's not something you want to keep repeating if it's avoidable. But we'll pay attention to that, but definitely one of the more exciting elements of the postseason overall, their ability to come back. But going more specifically into this series, in Game 1, the free throw disparity really cost Denver. 
And it was that second quarter that was particularly killer. Also, from my perspective, the Nuggets turnover rate has seemed high in both games so far. Although in the second game, they did a better job of getting back into transition defense. To what extent are either of those two serious problems that they need a remedy? Well, they knew transition was going to be an issue coming into this game or a point of emphasis might be a better way to describe it. But the Lakers love playing at a fast pace and they're unlike any other team in the NBA. I think that they're running on made baskets like they're taking the ball out of the rim on a made free throw and are turning around and chucking it down and hoping to get something to their advantage. And I think the Nuggets knew this, but they didn't know it until they were actually in the game to the extent of what it would actually be like. And so I think they learned from that. In game one, they gave up 35 transition points in that first game, which is ridiculously Uh, high. Uh, Came back and did a much better job of that in the second game, even though there were a couple times where they did get caught. But the other thing about Denver is they love crashing the offensive glass too. So it's a fine line between, you know, taking – one aspect of your game away because you like getting second chance points and you're so used to crashing hard and then getting caught in transition. So they've had to balance that a little bit more, I think in this series than they've had to against other opponents this season. Uh, As far as the turnovers go, and I actually asked Jamal Murray about this after game one and he kind of like laughed at me a little bit and was like, it's just game one guys. It's game one. This is a completely different defense than the Clippers. Give us a couple, you know, like give us some time to adjust and figure it out. And it's not like he has a Patrick Beverly hounding him all game long, even though, you know, they're doing a really good job of challenging Jamal the Lakers are he's right the the Clippers defense is very different than the Lakers defense in terms of what they're trying to do and the way they're in the gaps and the way that they rotate obviously most defensive schemes are kind of similar but just the feeling that the Nuggets get I think when they're taking on the Clippers versus taking on the Lakers is a little bit different not that that's an excuse by any means. The the turnovers have been atrocious really for both teams in the first two games. Like I think the last game was 24 and 23 or 24 and 20 or something like that. And so to have, I mean, 20 plus turnovers in an NBA game is just sloppy. And some of that might be the other team, but some of those is definitely going to be self-inflicted as well. So Denver just needs to be a little bit smarter, a little bit more focused and disciplined when they are playing their, you know, high cut, high pass and cut offense. We call it like the ball is popping offense in Denver because they move it so well and they pass up good shots for great ones. And sometimes they overpass and that can lead to turnovers. Sometimes they try and get too fancy and that can lead to turnovers. So they're still figuring out where they're going to get their best shots, I think, against the Lakers. And the Lakers take their game to a whole new level in the playoffs. So for those people that are like, well, you've seen them four times already heading into the series. Yeah, but it, it also is a very different Laker team, just as it is a different Nugget team at this point too. So I, I'm excited to see some adjustments here in the games moving forward and um, see if Denver can clean some things up in both of those areas. By the way, you were really close. The Lakers committed 24 turnovers in game two and 21 for the Nuggets. So yeah. really up there. There's one thing you just touched on that I want to focus on more closely. The Nuggets got badly out-rebounded in Game 2, and they had seven offensive rebounds, but the Lakers had 13. This hardly seems like a trend, but I I did just want to learn more about it. Jokic only had six rebounds in nearly 39 minutes. JaVale McGee had five in under 12 minutes, so obviously that seems like an outlier, but... Have the Lakers possibly found a way to slow down Jokic on the glass, or am I just making a little bit too much of one game? 
No, and Jokic kind of has games where he'll rebound a lot and then will not rebound as much. That's that's kind of a – he totally feels out the game and where he's going to, you know, find openings. And he sometimes will get a ton of defensive rebounds, and sometimes he is tasked with not letting his guy get the rebound at all. And so the guards pick up that slack a little bit where Jokic is just completely trying to remove his man from the play, from the rim, from the opportunity to get an offensive rebound. So, I mean, that could be part of it, I think, too, especially when like a Dwight Howard is in there. A lot of the Lakers bigs get most of their points, maybe other than Anthony Davis, from, you know, garbage points like that or just putting like putbacks, lobs, things of that nature. So I I think Nicola is so smart. He does such a good job of if, you know, if I'm not going to get the rebound, my man isn't going to get the rebound either. And he's also been forced in a lot of situations to be the helper. And so when he's stepping up, if they have him in a two-man game to guard the ball, he's the one who's contesting the shot. So he's just taking care of the shooter in that sense. Uh, and I think that we've seen that a couple times in in all in all three of these series, really. So it, it's situational, I think. There are games where, you know, he can have 20 rebounds, and there are games when, like you just said, he could have six. Yeah. Um, and some of that sometimes depends, too, on if – he's making his shots because he does get a lot of extra right. points and, and little buckets here and there from putting back his own. So if he's making his shots, you take away those opportunities and those rebounding numbers go down. Okay, that's fair. So for the next question, I'm going to give you three players on the Nuggets and ask you which of them you think will be the biggest X factor. Um, so Michael Porter Jr. gets a lot of attention. He has the the highest potential to just explode offensively. And he emerged seemingly out of nowhere. If you're not a Nuggets fan or covering the team starting in the bubble. And um, then Jeremy Grant, from my perspective is the best defensive player on the team. And he also can hit threes when he's going well. And then Paul Millsap is the veteran of the three and of the team. And he's been there before in the conference finals which of the three do you think stands out as the X factor? I think that it totally depends on the game. And I've been getting this question a ton and people want to say Michael Porter Jr., but I almost think that that's unfair given this is his first real playoff experience. And this is his yeah, rookie he's 22 too. Yep. So you're asking a lot of him when he's just trying to feel it out. And I think that he has grown immensely in terms, especially of his defensive performance throughout these playoffs. So, um, you can't expect him to make every shot he takes, even though it might seem like that because he's that insanely talented, but it it depends on the night. And what I mean by that is any given night, it can be anyone on this Nuggets team. They just need someone. So there were a couple games in the Clippers series where Paul Millsap had big quarters or big halves, and that completely shifted the game. A couple times, Gary Harris has done that as well, where he's hit a couple big open threes out of double teams that has given the Nuggets, given the Nuggets a complete boost. And Michael Porter Jr. off the bench, he's had, you know, more times than not where he's been able to provide that spark in the second unit and be the main producing guy for the bench. I think that the Nuggets need more of him and more of that for sure. But for him, I think I prefer when he comes into the game and is just like an energizer bunny in terms of like cutting to the basket a ton, getting offensive rebounds, getting those putbacks, getting to the free throw line, because he is so crafty and creative in the way that he can make his own shot happen. When he starts settling for those just one dribble pull up threes, which we all know in Denver that he's more than capable of making, 
you just don't want to see him go like, oh, a five from three and then be over on the stat line because that was what he settled for. So either when that shot does or doesn't go, build off of that and, and change your scoring mentality based off of how you know, your first couple shots go. I think there's, that's kind of the next step in his evolution as a player is like, okay, if I get this open three and I don't make it, then maybe I try and get to the free throw line or I try and get an easy bucket. And then I try the three again, just to build some confidence because he's such a, if he makes one, one or two, watch out, I'm going to, you know, only get better from here. Mm -hmm. So yes, you want him to be the X factor. And I think down the road, he will absolutely be Denver's third guy. But he's still so young and and inexperienced in a lot of ways that, look, it's not going to be consistent night in and night out quite yet for him. But he needs to work on controlling what he can control, his defense, his cutting, his movement, uh, his ability to crash the offensive glass. And then the scoring will come within that. But like I said, it, it depends on any given night and who has the hot hand, who has the opportunity. There's even been a couple times where Jeremy Grant has gotten hot for Denver and has hit some big threes. So that's when Denver's at operating at its best is when Murray and Jokic are going and the teams start to change up their coverages of them, whether that be double teams or different people guarding them more attention to them when they get beat. And then those other guys get pretty open shots. They just need to knock them down. So it's the collective output from the three you'd say. Uh, More than singling any one of them out. Any one of them, honestly. And I, I wouldn't even say just those three. I mean, you can look at Monte Morris, you can like, it's it's a dozer dozer, but um so just generally though this is probably an impossible question to answer given their offensive brilliance but how do you combat or at at least try to slow down lebron james and anthony davis anthony davis has been having monster games of course hit the game winner in game two and LeBron started off really hot and was pretty much carrying the Lakers offense. And then once the Nuggets slowed him down in the fourth quarter, it was other guys um, like Davis who stepped up, but that did allow the Nuggets to get back into the game. So is there a strategy for slowing those two down? Well, I think first and foremost, when LeBron James isn't on the floor, you have to take advantage of that. And I think we saw that, you know, full steam ahead in that game two that the Nuggets played. And that was a big part of their comeback. Uh, LeBron got going in the first half of that game. He played like he was, you know, angry about the MVP count, wanted to prove some people wrong. Who really knows what happened, but he was taking over in that first half. Anthony Davis dominated that first game. And it was almost as if at halftime, they were like, AD, you dominated the first game. Why do you have single digit points? in the first half here. And he came out and was like, Oh yeah, you're right. Nobody can stop me right now on the nuggets. So then he took over in the second, he's such a tough guard because he scores in so many different ways. You have to give him a bunch of different looks, a couple double teams here and there, uh, just make him uncomfortable in terms of what he's doing. And then when it comes to LeBron, you have to try and make him a jump shooter. Don't allow him to get all the way to the rim and, and start working in transition, going coast to coast, things like that. Obviously that's a lot easier said than done. Uh, especially if you're the Nuggets. And what I'll go back to saying it's a collective effort. Everybody's kind of got to be on the same page and know their assignments. And when a player needs help, you got to be there early and be there often. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm so curious about PJ Dozier. Since the Nuggets game one loss to the Clippers, he played a grand total of two minutes the rest of that series. Then he played the full fourth quarter in game one, but one could argue those were garbage minutes. You cannot argue that in game two. Those were the biggest minutes of his career. He was guarding LeBron James at times. I know he missed some big free throws, but he seemed to be overall a net positive for the Nuggets. 
how much of his minutes and uh, Malone's expanded rotation been influenced by all those game sevens, just all that mileage on, on the players who play more often, or is it more just inspired by defensive and matchup concerns? Um, I would say the latter, uh, but what coach Malone revealed was that Monte Morris had rolled his ankle in that game too. And so he wanted to give Monte some rest and didn't want to push that or make it worse. And PJ Dozier, is a much bigger guard. And he loved that. He loved that aspect of the matchup. He wanted to see what he could do out there. And I think PJ proved everybody that he can do a lot and that he is an NBA player. And I mean, coach Malone has been behind PJ Dozier since he became a member of this Nuggets team and has been preaching. He's an NBA guy. He's an NBA guy. Um, and then in that game, I mean, not afraid to take a charge on LeBron James. How many guys can say that they've done that before? And PJ just fearlessly comes into the game and makes some huge defensive plays and then makes some pretty good offensive plays as well. You mentioned the missed free throws, and I feel like that's what everybody's talking about. But Denver doesn't even have a chance to win that game if it's not for PJ Dozier's boost off the bench. So he beat himself about those free throws. I know he was disappointed. But he came in and made some really good things happen for Denver on both sides of the floor. And he's just another weapon that Coach Malone can go to uh, if he feels like it in different situations. Yeah, you have to be happy for a guy like that who's getting such critical minutes. A lot of people forget, and I'm included on in this, it's just easy to forget that it ever happened, that Will Barton was averaging 15 points per game for this team. And he started all 58 games that he played in. He hasn't appeared since the restart, still rehabbing his knee. Is there any realistic chance we'll see him by the end of this series if it goes long or in the finals should Denver advance? Not that I know of. Uh, from I've been talking to the PR staff about this a little bit, and, and nothing has really changed on the Will Barton front as far as I know. I do know he's been in Miami working his butt off, rehabbing his knee, and Coach Malone has said that he's you know doing the best he can to get healthy. But I wouldn't expect him to be back anytime soon. Um, And I think that, I mean, that hurts him. I know it does. Uh, He wants to be here with these guys. He wants to be working. He wants to be playing. He's a competitor to the highest degree and loves these types of moments. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll still working on that knee, but I don't expect us to see him anytime soon. Sounds like a long shot. He was a virtual fan, though, right? Yeah, last game he made an appearance as a virtual fan. So he was there in spirit. (laughs) that's pretty cool i as you know really appreciate your time so i'm just gonna do one more question and then let you go back to your busy life awesome thank you i appreciate that (laughs) no problem so um this is just a general overarching question where do the nuggets go from here if they want to have a chance at actually coming back to win this series and advancing to the finals Well, I think they have to, uh, you know, you saw glimpses of what they could do in that game too. And so I think it goes back to one of your first questions about the transition and the turnovers and really controlling what you can control. Um, I think that those numbers need to go down if they want to have a chance to win. And they know this too. Same with the second chance points that the Lakers have got as well. Um, And then you need your, your two stars to shine as they have been Jokic and Murray need to continue playing well. And then, like I mentioned earlier, just having the guys around them step up and be a little bit more of a productive supporting cast, that would be huge. And that would be, you know, the next step that Denver needs to take if they want to make these games close and competitive and give themselves a chance to win. Mm -hmm. I don't think this series is over by any means, but 
Yeah, if you do, you haven't been watching the other two, that's for sure. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. If the Nuggets, um, even if the Nuggets aren't able to overcome the Lakers, you know they're not going to go quietly. And so that's why I'm I'm glued to this series personally. Yeah, I mean, and the way that they've come back and showed that resiliency that we talked about at the beginning of this interview, that to me is like, you can't ever count them out. No matter if they're down by 20 points, if they're down by five, if they're down by 12, if they're down 2-0, if they're down 3-1, whatever that might be. I mean, this team just never dies. They never quit. And, you know, I think... Laker fans and and all those the people who are rooting for LeBron and AD to win a title are saying, oh no, they got this. Look at the way that they played in the first two games. But if you're just an NBA fan and you're a basketball fan and you've been watching and following the Nuggets, you're like, I'm not so sure about that. I think these games are going to be closer than anybody thinks. So we'll see if the Nuggets can steal a couple here in you know the next couple days. But I, I think that as of now, given the way the Nuggets have performed, what they've already proved. Nobody has, is, is counting them out quite yet. This was great. Enjoy the rest of the Nuggets. Hey, thank you. Appreciate the time, Aaron. Have, thanks for having me on.